is Fesad This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, London, London is Blue, Blue podcast. podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That is right of the London is Blue podcast. One of your hosts, Dan here. No Nick, no Brandon, no Jesse, no Abdullah, no Rick Glanville. No Gary Barone. That's right. It's a different type of episode here today. Uh, wonderful friend of the podcast, newly minted member of the London is Blue family. We have Sam, also known as CFC Central. And we are starting a little bit of a zoom out series that we're going to be doing throughout the season. And it's a little bit of a fact or fiction on individual players and we know sam is renowned for his analysis his deep dives the fact that he i don't know i feel like it's like a clockwork orange scene where maybe you have taped your eyelids open to just absorb all the information for as many hours as you need to to come to the conclusion sam but this is really the genesis of a more tactical approach to individual player analysis for chelsea players Hey Dan, first of all, happy Diwali from from Indian shores to everybody listening in. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, if you hear some some really loud sounds in the background, I haven't had Taco Bell. It's just firecrackers going on from from Diwali season. So um, please excuse me if that happens. Disclaimer, but I'm really happy to be back here, Dan. And I think it excites me the format because I've always viewed my strengths as being somewhat of a soft feature person, somebody who likes focusing on the human narrative rather than the tactical one. Uh, haven't been able to do it yet because I'm obviously very new to the scene, but it, it's, I think, a fascinating perspective to take and combine who the human is with what they're trying to do on a football pitch. And I think this format allows us to explore that um, in far more detail than we have previously. So really excited to, to get it underway. And obviously the subject of today's podcast, I think, serves as the perfect sort of, um, you know, the perfect focal point for, for getting this underway. Well, yeah, consider this a, uh, a Chelsea player crunch wrap of analysis when it comes to where we're going to get to today on Jorginho, fact or fiction. And that's the way we want to set this up. We're examining that individual player performance and we're trying to take the moment out of it. We're trying to take the match, the blood boiling over, the great penalty conversion, the poor missed tackle, the wonderful pass, and just bring it out and look at it in a little bit more of an analytical way. But then also, to the point you made, Sam, get into the story, get into a little bit more of who they are, how they got here, and how the evolution of the player has occurred. Because we have to remember at the end of the day, the players we're talking about in this series, they're a Chelsea player. They've been a part, potentially, of some major honors in this club's history. And figuring out where they fit within that narrative is a really important part within this. But I love to kind of get in, and we can just go straight into the bio, right? You think about this when you're writing your your novels, you're working on your your fiction. It is the, the story. It's the framework of the individual. And maybe just for those who don't remember or who don't know fully, what's the basis of Jorginho's story here? Well, he's obviously had, I would say, just a similar sort of track to what Brazilian players do when they come to Europe. It's it's very, very difficult to make the transition from, from playing there to, to playing in on European shows. Um, you, if you look at current Brazilian players in the Premier League, if you look at 
say, Richarlison. Um, you look at Rafinha, who left for Barcelona. Extremely tough on bringing. And I think it's been similar for for Jorginho as well. Um, he was rejected by three clubs when he was in Brazil. I think Sao Paulo-based clubs rejected him because wasn't physically strong enough. No surprise. Um, he had to sort of move away at a very young age to be in a in a brutal training camp, uh, camp where uh, the living conditions were, were really, really bad. There is this beautiful piece on the Players' Tribune where Jorginho goes into details talking about you know how they had to eat the same food for three or four days. Um, the living conditions were so bad. Like there were about 50 kids, you know, lined up in bunk beds. And um, at one point, his mom came to visit him and said, you're not staying here anymore. You just you have to go back home. And Jorginho said, look, if, if I go back home and I don't make it as a footballer, I'm going to hate you all my life. And his mom left basically like in tears. So he's had to struggle from, from right there. And he got his lucky break at about 15. He moved to Verona and um, there he had to stay in a monastery and um, his agent actually ended up scamming him. So he was somehow on 20 euros a week, which was an abysmal amount of money to survive in Europe, especially when you're a Brazilian kid who's come to Europe for the first time. Um, and he spent five of those euros from every week <clears throat> calling back home, the rest of it on toothpaste, on, on shampoo, on deodorant. And on weekends, he'd stay in an internet cafe and then try to message his friends back home on MSN. So not a very good upbringing. It was, it was extremely tough. It's something that he mentions frequently, saying that every club he's been at, he's faced extreme difficulties. When he came to Verona, he was loaned out to the fourth division. Um, then he had to wait for his chance to come back up. At Napoli, he struggled before Sari came. So it's a bit, bit of a pattern where he's come to a club and, and he struggled and, and no different with Chelsea. So I think he's somebody who's been through through a lot of hardships, personal hardships. Um, his mom is actually a big influence. She was um, a football player herself. So whatever skills come to Jorginho, not from the dad, from, from his mom. And he mentions that frequently in the interview. So Considering how happy-go-lucky he looks in interviews, how often he smiles, how often he's effervescent, and people obviously like around him tend to respect that a lot. I think it's, it's important to say that, you know, it's uh, from a personality trait, he's a resilient, he's he's a resilient person, he's an extremely strong guy, and I think that's in itself an asset. And I, I just want to build this part of his profile for a reason: that charisma, that that ability to be absolutely, you know in pressure cooker situations and and be immune to it, I think is something that is very important. So literal, I would say, rags to riches story at this point. Yeah, he's got a very, I don't know if you would call it unique, but just a very storied path on the way he made it to Chelsea. When you look at the elements that come up there that you pulled out, just the you know, multiple country moves, the fact that you're on an internet you know, cafe working across MSN to try to get in touch with family and friends. And then you mentioned his mom. And I think for all of us who have seen it, if you haven't seen it, seeking it out, I'll remember the video of where he brings his mom into the Chelsea mega store connected to the club and just how she breaks down seeing Jorginho's shirt there like that is a if you want a reflection for how much it meant to her how much this journey has meant to them and their family that is a very 
real and heartfelt example of just how much that family loves one another and I think how much and how special this stop on his career, you know, we, we imagine at some point Jorginho gets an opportunity to play somewhere else. You know, most players don't finish their careers at Chelsea. Um, and so this, you know, it shows how important this stop on that path is for him. And there's another video, to be honest, Dan. I think it was shot just after the Champions League where he's Zoom calling his mom. And they have a conversation about how he made it this far. And I think it's it's just poignant. And there are so many instances of extreme emotional strain in terms of the challenges that had been, you know, put in his way and then the way he had to overcome them to, to make it where he is right now. Um, I think his parents separated at a young age and there was this one point in the interview when I was reading, he called back home from, from Italy saying that, you know, I just want to leave because, you know, my agent's basically taken all my money. I'm, I'm not playing football. It doesn't look like my career is going anywhere. I need to come back. And his mom said, "Your door, my, my door is going to be shut when you come back home. So he actually called his dad <laughs> and, and said that, you know what, I, I can stay with my dad. That's no issue. So he called his dad and his dad said the exact same thing. He said, you, you're not coming back home. And then both his parents separated, got back together for the exclusive reason that they wanted this kid to know that he's going to make it. And I think that's that's incredible. I think the amount of, obviously, you know, the foundation of the support he has behind him has, has made him the player that he is. But it's a lot of burden to take. It's a lot of pressure to to overcome, to get here. And I think it, it shows in a lot of characteristics, the way he plays. You know, we will talk about it in detail later on. The way he takes his penalties, I think, um, well, <laughs> that would require a certain amount of conditioning to to be able to drown out the noise, to be able to put away the pressure. And I think that comes from from going through whatever he has as a young kid. So as we start to move on past the narrative elements, since we've built out the skeleton of this episode, let's maybe transition into how he is viewed or maybe how we viewed him individually before we went through this journey of diving a little bit deeper into his history, into his match performances, into the the pros and cons of his game. And I would say lightning rod would be a great way to describe Jorginho at this point in his Chelsea career and maybe throughout the entirety of his Chelsea career that he is a very appreciated by some, not appreciated by others, and it almost feels like it's just a... I don't know, like cilantro. You either love it as a seasoning or you don't love it. And those who do appreciate it really appreciate it. And those who don't, don't want to talk about it. Yeah, I think you've put it very eloquently. Um, It's just, I think I've never seen a player at Chelsea who um, has a following that rates him higher than he actually is. And the other half, you know, hates him and calls him worse than he actually is. You know, I think it's just an extreme situation like both sides claim that he is you know on the opposite ends of the spectrum and I think it's important to have a nuanced perspective and a balanced perspective on on what his strengths are and what his weaknesses are but overwhelmingly like from my situation at at from social media and and everything that I perceived it's just extremely negative people tend to think he's not physically suited to the Premier League he commits a lot of mistakes you know he's 
ineffective than when we're trying to defend transitions, all of which have a modicum of truth in it. So um, I think it's a he's very polarizing figure, obviously, but I would say it's tilting a lot towards towards saying that he's a player who's not good enough for Chelsea. Well, that is the line item right there. I think the other thing that we would want to talk about is just maybe his arrival at Chelsea and how it almost was the package deal. Mauricio Sarri comes in and Jorginho in a bit of a swoop, in a bit of a we were able to make the deal happen, ends up going from the light blue of Manchester City to the royal blue or the Chelsea blue of London's first and London's finest in terms of the you know, the pride of London. And so I think that's another thing where I feel like at times you almost have an association that you, there are people who can't break away from the fact, you know, similar to Mason and Lampard or something that, you know, Sari and Jorginho are forever interlinked in the way that people view them or the way that that emotion is attached to them. I think it's very, very true, to be honest. I think um, it's very sad, but I think it's a guilty by association kind of uh, trick that people have pulled saying that, you know, basically Sari, everything he touched was was a poison chalice and, and Jorginho being the fulcrum of what he was trying to build was essentially viewed as that. And and like you rightly said, Mason Mount also gets an incredible amount of, of negativity. Um, which baffles my mind. So I think it just also from, from that perspective, a lot of different things that come together to um, to pile on the pressure on him, I would say. But um, And it's something that he's referenced in the past as well. He said, um, I was too slow. I was too weak. I was Sari's son. Mad, it made me angry. I mean, he said that in an interview. So, I mean, he's very aware of the fact that, you know, that is the perception of him. But... Um, it is what it is, and I don't think he cares too much about it, to be honest. He's also Chelsea's only player since, only men's team player since Frank Lampard, who finished as a top three finalist for the Ballon d'Or, which that would not be potentially the pub, pub trivia quiz answer that you would be anticipating, but that is the reality. <laughs> um which feels very weird to say at times. I mean, uh, men's UEFA player of the year, um, in addition to his time at Chelsea, obviously integral into the Euros victory for Italy. I mean, he's, you know, both for a domestic club perspective, he has been maybe more so from the European side of Chelsea's game and the international game. I feel like there's a different appreciation for how he plays in parts too. And that, that that's maybe something where I view him as, man, he's great in the Champions League games that we're going into, but I don't necessarily always feel like in the Premier League we get the same version or the same quality or it's always as consistent. I would say you're spot on. You know, I think it's there is a certain difference between how the average spectator views him versus people who are familiar with the game view him. I think obviously there are some coinciding factors, but the most apparent of them sort of happened in the Salzburg game just, um, you know, last a couple of days ago. Um, people said that he had an extremely bad game in the first half and, you know, he was he was at fault for a lot of transitions, but <clears throat> actually ended up being voted the man of the match by the UEFA technical spectator. So, tends to baffle you. Like, 
what is this person seeing that I'm not seeing? You know, it, it, why is this happening? So I think the point of this episode is to try and, and highlight those points in terms of why is it that we can't see? But uh, yeah, hopefully we can we can do that in the next 15, 20 minutes. Oh, I think we'll take a little more time than that, but we're going to take a quick ad break and then we're going to jump in to the case, the case of why Jorginho and what's working, what's not working. What are the things that he does extremely well? What are the things that we're missing potentially as average supporters? But we're going to take a real quick break. We want to thank these sponsors for financially supporting the show. We'll be right back. All right, Sam. So coming out of the break, as we take a look at it here, it's now down in a little bit of that fact and fiction, trying to figure out and demystify the ideology of Jorginho, because it feels like at times it is a, a a cult or culture of belief about who he is and what he does. And I think the way that you're framing it is that there's a couple of callbacks and maybe similarities to styles of players or players that you would say, hey, here's a good comp. Here's an example of him but also the way that like the type of player that he is that you would want to kind of underline as the framing of the case. Yeah, actually, before when we were sort of working on the document, my heading for the for the document was, you know, old world blues or something like an old world monument in a new age, which essentially defines, I think, the kind of conundrum that we see with Jorginho. And when I was doing my research, um, there were a lot of, like you said, historical callbacks. There were sort of references, which I think lend a lot of credence to his role in terms of what he's trying to achieve when he's on the pitch. And uh, I would say three factors come to mind when I'm trying to elucidate on it. The first is uh, a word which is sort of become synonymous with him. People tend to hate it now, but I think it's important to elaborate on it. It's, it's register. So the word comes essentially... When during the 1930s, this Italian coach called Vittorio Pozzo, he was playing a formation that's called a double M, a 2-3-2-3. Two, three, two, three. And he wanted the central player in the second line to be able to not just mark the center forward, but when you had the ball, to be able to find advantageous spaces in the attacking third with quick passes, you know, somebody with vision, somebody with the technical elegance to pull it off, you know, rapidly. And... Um, that's where the word register was born. You know, register coming from the Italian word for director. So you have somebody who's essentially choreographing uh, attacking sequences from a deeper role. And then that's what the genesis of the word is. Now, the first register was this guy called Luis Felipe Monti. Uh, historians would be very familiar with him. He's known as one of the best centre-backs of that generation. He's also the only player to play two consecutive World Cup finals with two different countries. So he played with Argentina in 1930 and he lost. And then he played for Italy and he won in 1934. And he was this classical register. Bold and brave move. Yeah. Bold and brave move to switch from Argentina to Italy and then come away with a dub at the next yeah. time. It, and it's pretty like pretty similar to Georgina, like moving from a South American country to Italy and then being recognized for a role that was previously, you know, sort of he was shoehorned into being a, a very defensive minded, very robust uh, tackling midfielder. But obviously his manager, you know, Pozzo sort of saw that he had that in his locker, the ability to to unlock defenses from a deeper position. And that's what led to to this tactical role of somebody who is able to orchestrate, somebody who is able to 
to find gaps from from deeper positions. And that's where the Rajasthan etymology comes from. And I think when you look at Jorginho, I think that's what the framing of the role is. When you look at what Sadi was trying to achieve at Napoli, I think having a player like him in the middle to to try and orchestrate, to try and build. At Napoli in his first couple of seasons, he was averaging somewhere around like an around 100 and 120 passes a game, which is ridiculous, to be honest. There were some games where I think he registered 178, 180 passes, uh, which is frankly a little bit bizarre to see, but it wasn't as slow and tedious as we came to see in Sari's first season at Chelsea. So I think that's where the role comes from, um, just providing a little bit of context. The second thing that, that came to mind was this little skinny kid, this 10-year-old kid who used to play in this village in 1979, about 70 kilometers from Barcelona. It was called San Pedor, and he was a son of a bricklayer. And uh, the first time Johan Cruyff saw him play, he wasn't very impressed. You know, he was like, I don't see anything special about this kid. And uh, <clears throat> at one point in time, he said that, <clears throat> sorry, sorry. <laughs> at one point in time, he said that, um, Pep Guardiola was slower than my grandmother um, and and the same kind of issues that you see with Jorginho uh, sort of popped up with Pep Guardiola as well. I mean, the antithesis of, of midfielders in the early 90s, somebody who was extremely physically robust, had the ability to cover ground very rapidly, to be able to go side to side and then make sure that you know you could you could screen the defense well and guardiola was the exact antithesis of that he was somebody with a low muscle mass somebody who you would say didn't have the kind of physical presence that you would come to expect from a midfielder but um it was interesting it was very very interesting to see a player sort of break through and, and especially in the dream team with with the kind of talent that cruyff had at that point in barcelona this kid who did not have the kind of physical characteristics, who did not ooze the kind of technical elegance, the kind of dribbling away from, from four or five players. And, and when you looked at Guardiola, he was completely different there. And it's something that Cruyff mentioned as well a lot, saying that there's this quote where he says, Guardiola had to be clever. He didn't have any other choice back then. He was a bit like me. You must have a lot of technique, move the ball quickly, avoid a collision. And to avoid it, you must have good vision. It's a domino effect. You soon get a sharp eye for detail, for players' positions. You can apply this when you're a player and a coach too. And I think it was very prophetic in the way that Guardiola would function as a player and also as a manager. Somebody who's um, obviously got the technical new, the vision to, to play that role. And um, it's no surprise that when we were linked with Jorginho, like you said, you know, um, Pep was the first guy to say, I want him in my team. And um, when I was watching Pep Guardiola play for this little project that I was trying to do, it was uncanny how similar um, Guardiola was to Jorginho. It, it sort of like, you know, gave me an eerie kind of deja vu. I'm saying this guy is Jorginho. You know, he plays exactly like him. Um, and I think that if Guardiola would have played 20 years later, he would have been very similar to Jorginho. And if Jorginho would have played 20 years earlier, I think he would have been hailed as much as, as a Guardiola. I don't know if we have the, the time-traveling type of scenario there that people would you know love to digest further, but it'd be interesting if you put 
a Guardiola from the that time frame into the into a modern Chelsea and from a Jorginho tra- time traveling back into a Barcelona side what the what the analysis would be there but I feel like that's a fun football manager or FIFA uh, <laughs> implementation that somebody should try for sure I think that's a, that's a great thought exercise to have and then it was it was great I mean when I was watching Guardiola's games back it was it was amazing to see the speed of the game it was a lot more direct you know players trying to you know center backs as soon as they won the ball there was no passing around there was no you know finding a structure it was just hoof it long you know when you have players like Laudrup and when you have other players like you know zoning around Figo and all these guys in the later years I mean, who would want to play passing football? You just give the ball to them and, and expect a goal. And Guardiola was the only one who was showing some semblance of restraint. You know, he, at times when when games would get extremely frantic, he would ask players to slow down. Um, even senior players, you know, players like Ronald Koeman, he would ask them to, you know, just calm down, get the ball, pass it around, find the gaps. And I think that was that was very reminiscent of the Jorginho that I saw at Napoli. I think the ideas were very, very similar. And eerily, I think when I was watching a, a, a game when Guardiola was, Guardiola was about like 30, 31 years old in, in the 2000 Euros for Spain, he played against Zidane and he got absolutely blitzed. You know, there were midfielders running past him as if he wasn't there. And all of those weaknesses that we tend to associate with Jorginho were, were pretty evident. But, you know, obviously the level of criticism wasn't leveled at Guardiola because people understood that what he got on the ball, which is what you tend to do for a large part of the game, was sort of superior to what he was vulnerable to off the ball. And I think that's the weakness versus strength kind of balancing act that we also need to do with Jorginho. I think people tend to, to focus on acts that are more easily imprinted in the memory. You tend to see Jorginho getting left behind in a in a foot race, but the 120 times he's on the ball and he's passing, he tends to look, make things look very simple, very ordinary. And and about like 20 to 25 times a game, he's receiving under pressure with like three midfielders running at him, with you know center forward charging at him, with his back to the opposition goal. It's not an easy role to do, but. It's something that's extremely valued and I think uh, draws very, very close parallels with with Guardiola. And then I think the last point you want to get into is into maybe the way Allegri looked at the game as well. Yes. So there is this, I would say, the Harvard of Italian managers. So it's called Coversiano. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. If there are any Italian purists, please let me know if, if I got it right. But Coversiano is basically, um, you know, it's, it's the training school for managers. Every manager, every renowned manager has to go through this school of thought. You have to present a master's thesis on <clears throat> a certain idea of the game that you might have. And Max Allegri essentially worked on what characteristics you would want in a three-man midfield. So he talked about each midfielder, a, a number four, who was the register, a number eight, who was more like the box-to-box type and the number 10 who was more of the the free-flowing playmaker kind of type. So when I was looking at Allegri's thesis, when I read it a couple of years ago, and and he talks about um, the ideal number four or the ideal register or the deep pivot ideally possesses great charisma to be able to guide two midfielders, the number 10 and number eight, when not in possession, 
and also the three men who are attacking, the number seven, the number nine, and the number 11. Also important, when the action is terminated, the deep register must draw the two midfielders and three strikers at once to get into the right positions in order to organize the recapturing of the ball. <coughs> so I think what's extremely important here is the organization skills, the words that that people have defined with this characteristic is authority and charisma, which is why I was building up Jorginho in the, in the first phase. It was about finding this person who clicks on, on a very personal level with everybody else who commands that kind of authority. Um, he's able to organize midfielders properly. If you see Mateo Kovacic, if you see Jorginho, if you see Kante play in the center of the field, the only person who's dictating, the only person who's asking players to move in a certain way is Jorginho. And I think that's a severely underrated aspect of, of his tactical discipline. You know, if you could ask a manager that a player who's able to enforce your tactical plan in-game, would you have that player on the field? I think about 80% of the managers would say definitely. I would want sort of like an alarm clock telling you, listen, this is not the position. You need to move wider. We need to move narrower. And I think that's what Allegri's thesis talks about from, from the role of the deep register. You're somebody who's an organizing presence. And if your team is organized, uh, then, then you know it's harder to break down. It's definitely going to be tougher to try and, and attack the team. And um, it's de definitely going to be difficult to take the ball away from them, considering he's obviously the, the nerve center of the team, as Allegri calls it. So... I think those three factors when I'm looking at it is is extremely vital in understanding Jorginho. He is somebody who brings an organizational perspective. He's also somebody who's, you know, the I think just the enforcer, the manager's enforcer. I think every manager that's come at Chelsea has valued him for this reason. You know, we we tend to ask, like, what is it that people see in him? You know, he's obviously physically not astute, he's not adequate, but I think the mental side of the game is is extremely underrated. And and for this generation who is used to FIFA and, and FIFA manager and it's sort of like seeing the game from, you know, a certain angle, like you see it from a very convenient sort of like top-down angle where you can see the entire pitch, you can see the spaces. I think it's extremely difficult to envision what a midfielder sees in real time, you know, when he's actually on the field to be able to see that perspective while you're playing the game is an extremely vital asset. I think it's it's not sort of stated enough. And he tends to look at it. He I, When I was watching the Salzburg game back, Conor Gallagher was picking up a, a lot of erroneous positions when, when the build-up phase was happening. And Georgini was constantly telling him that, you know, you need to be at this position when we're building up. And when I have the ball, this is where you need to receive. There were a lot of gestures to him guiding him through the game. And I think in a volatile formation that we played against Salzburg, when when you know counterattacks would have like caused a lot more damage than they, they they could have against one of our other formations. It was very important to have somebody like a Jorginho in there telling people which positions they need to occupy. And I think for that reason, uh, he won man of the match purely because of his ability to organize and to make sure the system was prioritized over everything else. So when you think about his time at Chelsea here, and I know we want to talk about how his role has evolved over time. I don't think people realize, because I think 
there's the sliding doors of hey he you know doesn't potentially come to Chelsea you know he's at Napoli he goes to City there's a whole different narrative there but at this point in his career he's played more matches for Chelsea than he did in the entirety of his Napoli career he's at 203 matches played for Chelsea in the five seasons he's been here played 152 for the five seasons he played at Napoli and among that He's over 15,700 minutes at the time of recording here on October 26th of 2022. And he played 11,477 minutes in those five seasons for Napoli. So, I mean, he's got 29 goals for Chelsea, which is something I don't know you would have expected that he was going to provide when he came. That's more than his combined number at Verona or Napoli. Uh, he only has half the assist uh, over the, the five seasons at seven that he did over Napoli of the 14 in total. And I think maybe where I would say is we could kind of talk about him and how he's evolved in his time here. But I, I feel like the other thing from just, uh, the comparison factor for him is is a big challenge going up against being compared to N'Golo Kante for large portions of his time here, particularly when N'Golo Kante was at you know some of his healthiest or more healthiest uh, moments over the past couple seasons. Yeah, for, for certain, Dan. I think it's an interesting question that I asked a friend um, a couple of weeks ago. I said, you know, of all the players that you remember from England's golden generation, um, Paul Scholes, you talk about David Beckham, you talk about Frank Lampard, you talk about Steven Gerrard, how many of them wanted to be Michael Carrick? You know, and, and I think it's it's an ideological difference in the way that you view the game. I think a person of his skill set isn't quite valued in the English game. Um, the kind of stabilizing presence that he brings on the ball, the mental aspect of it, I think, isn't appreciated enough. When we obviously got Maurizio Sarri to the club, I think the idea of what Roman Abramovich was looking at was trying to instill a similar system to, to Napoli. He's a highly organized um, a system which could be you know, very possession-heavy, could pass the ball around, could, could keep it away from opposition. Um, and, and I think in, 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 uh, in hindsight, I would say it's, it's great to look at it and say, all right, there were, there were a lot of merits to the system, to be honest. When I compare, this might come off as extremely scandalous, but... I think Maurizio Sarri and Thomas Tuchel sort of have the same objectives in mind. They have the same philosophies in terms of, can you keep the ball away from the opposition? Can you prioritize control over everything else? And I think those two factors are extremely easily seen in both their formations and both their systems. The only difference under Sarri was that, you know, we had somebody who was an absolute ingenious lock picker 1v1 in Eden Hazard and he actually ended up having his best Chelsea numbers you know 16 goals and 15 assists which was mad you know in a, in a league season and if you had somebody that could offer a similar level of 1v1 uh, prowess that amount of playmaking from a wide position I think Tuchel's system would have worked out I think he would have still had a job at Chelsea so I think it was just superimposing a 4-3-3, which, which had like <clears throat> the register as the base, somebody who could make 150 passes a game, keep the ball away from the opposition, 
you know, dictate the tempo and, and then obviously bring it to a player who's capable of causing damage from um, in the attacking third against a low block where, where you've had the opposition into a corner. So um, I think that was the intention. And, and I think the stats also kind of reflect it because in his last season at Napoli, he was averaging 109.8 passes attempted per game. Uh, he was completing about 59.4 passes, um, short passes per 90. And um, when he came to Chelsea with his first season, from 190 dropped to 86. Um, it was, I think, again, a realization somewhere that you know Italian teams are going to function a lot differently compared to English ones. You're going to have to adapt your game. So lesser passes, but a similar high level of trying to dictate with short passes, setting the tempo. And from there, from 86, we dropped to the next three seasons, which is 84, 78, and 73. And this season, he's averaging 64. So the difference between 109 to a 64 is almost half. So now you're wondering whether Jorginho is serving the same purpose that he did when he was brought in under Sadi. And the, and the answer is no. You know, he's essentially not functioning as, as the deep pivot, somebody who will receive 100 touches, 150 touches a game. I think the game's a lot faster. And it's something that when I was analyzing with, with Graham Potter, the midfielders that he uses, I think, I think Jorginho is a good-to-have player. He's not a must-have player. If you look at um, Enoch Mwepu, if you look at Yves Basuma, if you look at Moises Caicedo, none of them have to be as active in the first phase. They don't have to receive with their back to goal. They don't take 100 touches a game. And it's, I think it's something similar that we're seeing with the Chelsea midfield. So there has been a steady evolution. And I think we're moving towards a system with Porto where Jorginho is a good midfielder to have, but he's not somebody who's obviously going to be indispensable. You know, his skill sets, his influence in the game is reducing a little bit. Um, but where I think he's been consistently very good is his ability to pass under pressure. So when he came to to Chelsea at at Bitsari, he was first in the league uh, for passes under pressure. The second was Eden Hazard. In 1920, he was second behind Rodri. And 2021, he was second, again, behind Rodri and ahead of Thiago. So there are some characteristics that are still there. You know, he's obviously the first player who's our outlet out of pressure, who's able to offer that kind of ease for the defense uh, when, when they're under pressure, when they're being underpressed. So um, I think it's it's going to be very difficult to, to find that kind of a midfielder who's able to offer you both. You know, somebody who's obviously very good in the first phase, can pass very well under pressure, and is also able to, to offer that level of organization, that level of communication. So that's where we are at. I think the evolution is lesser influenced and probably considering that his contract runs out at the end of the summer, moving away from a Jorginho to, to a different brand of midfielder. Well, that is some... Summary there on where his career is, I don't know, I'd say evolving to, but just how the system or the change of managers has resulted in maybe the way that his ability to impact the game at Chelsea has changed. But even as you would say, you know, I think as we kind of look at it here in the next phase of it, that Champions League 
run, that European competition under Tuchel, was maybe more the most impressive duration of Jorginho's time at Chelsea and probably will be remembered, I would say, the most fondly out of any of his contributions if he leaves at the end of this season or gets extended and leaves in a future season. Yeah, I think he was phenomenal. He was absolutely brilliant. And I think there was, it was just destiny bringing together two of his strongest traits. It was a manager who prioritized control. Like I said, Tupil was somebody who recognized that in knockout competitions, when your opposition does not have the incentive of taking away one point, I think, you know, the ability to hold on to the ball, the ability to to make clever decisions, to be able to organize your team very well, I think that you know, in leaps and bounds helps you over a league campaign. And I think Jorginho was at his best in that Champions League. Some of the performances he put in, you know, in the Champions League final, he was really good. But against Real Madrid, you know, when he was, I think, booked in the 13th minute for fouling Cruz and and the rest of the game, he was like on, on tenterhooks, but he pulled off an incredible performance. At the end of the Champions League campaign, he was like, he had the most interceptions with 21. He had the second most recoveries, you know, with 120 and behind somebody like a conventional DM like Casemiro, uh, which is which is quite staggering. And I think it's also a fair reflection of he might look slow, but in terms of physical endurance, he's he's quite the beast. He covered the second most distance with 126 and a half kilometers. The only person who ran further than him was Bernardo Silva. So um and the second most pressures as well. He had 218 pressures. The first, again, was Bernardo Silva. So I think in terms of his endurance, in terms of the continental game where the game is slightly more controlled, I would say it's, it's there's a lot more scope to control the game and, and to frustrate your opponent because there is a limited amount of time to, to make an impact, especially in the knockout rounds. I wouldn't say the group stage matters a lot, but in the knockout rounds, when you have a player like him who understands what your opposition is trying to do. I think it's it's a great, great asset to have. And I think that leaves us with a very interesting juncture where we know that he's probably got around like six, seven, eight months before his deal expires. So what do we do with him? He's obviously not going to get slower with age. He's already there. And, you know, he's he's extremely durable. You know, he's probably been our most available midfielder out of Mateo Kovacic, Kante and Jorginho. He's been there. He's played through back injuries for us. Um, you know, he's he regularly runs around 13, 13 and a half kilometers a game. So he he does put in a lot of a lot of defensive work and, and his game reading is great. You don't clock the most interceptions in a league campaign or or in a Champions League campaign if you're not good at reading the game, which is something that I would say to, to his critics, saying that he does not know how to play. I think he has he has a first-class manager's brain, but he has third-division feet. You know, he doesn't have the physique. He doesn't have the mobility to, to execute what his mind is thinking, which is why I think he'll be a phenomenal manager. But he's also a very, very useful player. And considering... We have to rebuild our midfield with probably N'Golo Kante departing with possibly a couple of other departures. Maybe a more defensive-minded player and and coupled with the fact that Georgie is available almost all the time. I think it's, it's not bad to offer him a, a raise of 30000 a week and keep him for the next three or four years if he wants to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a very interesting decision point 
and I think a reflection, hopefully not on his entire tenure here. I, I don't want his renewal to come down to a essentially a judgment on the entirety of his contribution to Chelsea because as we just went through all this, we, we realized that in that Champions League campaign, um, it, without Jorginho, you're you're not <laughs> you're not having a wonderful night in Porto. Uh, as much as anyone else contributed to that uh, that end effort there. And so I would say we're going to get into a little bit more of our kind of closing thoughts here as we just simmer in the information that Sam provided us for just a moment. We're going to take one last break, and we'll be right back. So, Sam, we've, we've spent some time talking about Jorginho. We've spent some time looking at the player, the person, the stats, the story, and now we're winding down to the end of our episode. And I guess the question I would ask to you after this reflection, after this deep dive, is how has your opinion or feelings or knowledge around Jorginho changed? What, what in your view, is different today than it was a week ago or two weeks ago? I think I'm, I've been pretty much at the same juncture because I've obviously not been in in that school of thought where I think that he needs to be dumped out immediately. He's not good enough to play for Chelsea. I think he brings an immense array of qualities which are unique to him in terms of his experience playing in that position, in that role. I think his organizational skills in, in terms of dictating, in terms of ensuring that everybody else knows what their role is, I think is is phenomenally important. You know, it can't be understated. It's not something that will be reflected by stats. It's not something that you can see in numbers. You know, communications per 90 is not a metric that I know of. But, you know, he's just somebody who who makes other people better even when he's having a bad day. And I think when you look at it that way, if you can have somebody who's constantly able to adjust positions of other players to to make the structure better, then you start appreciating what what he brings to, to the side. And I think um, that's what people need to to be more focused on rather than just coming up with outlandish accusations that he can't play football. He's obviously a very gifted footballer, but not the kind of qualities that obviously as Premier League viewers are, are sort of accustomed to. Um, Jorginho, I think in in my closing thoughts, I think he's a he's a very ideal Cruyffian, Guardiolan player. I think he's just somebody that both those managers would have loved to manage. He's got the intelligence, he's got the speed of thought and and both Cruyff and Guardiola said that, you know, they they admitted that they weren't the quickest players, they weren't the strongest players, but what made them better was their ability to, to envision faster and quicker than everybody else. And I think that's that's the quality of player that would have really appealed to them. So uh, if if all the other managers can see it, then then why can't fans see it? It's I think very important for us to to view him for what he's good at rather than rebuke him for for what he's not. Uh, the second interesting difference why I talked about Pep earlier was that Guardiola left Barcelona at 30 because he said the game was getting too physical. That he knew he was going to get you know outpaced, he was going to get outrun. Um, and it was, I think, a very thoughtful self-reflection, self-critical way of appraising his, his own usefulness to the Barcelona side. And it's something that he also said with in an interview with uh, Yanagi Fotoft recently, when he was asked the question, what would Pep Guardiola, the manager, tell Pep Guardiola, the player? 
And he replied with saying that, you know, I would probably be on the bench. You know, I, I wouldn't probably get out of there because I wasn't physically good enough. And I think that's an interesting question when it comes to Jorginho. I think he's been extremely brave and and make no mistake about it. Georgie knows that he's physically not explosive. He's not somebody who can match up with the acceleration of, of other central midfielders or attackers. But despite all of that, despite knowing he's he's at a disadvantage, he's decided to stay and fight for his position. And I think that's whether you like the way he plays, but you don't. I think mentally that's something extremely admirable. But whether he takes that decision to stay there and, and face that same amount of criticism, whether he knows that he can go back to Italy and play at a pace that is more accustomed and in a league that he, which he knows very, very well, I think that is the question that we'll be looking at probably, you know, uh, by January, hopefully. So um, I, I'd be happy for him to stay. And if he leaves, it's also not like, you know, damaging to me. I think we can. We've got some great midfielders coming up in the transfer market we could look to target. But I also appreciate him far more than than a lot of Chelsea fans do. And um, I think uh, the last point is something that I mentioned. I think there are interesting profiles that Porter's seen in his midfield, which do not correlate to what Jorginho is. So I think that, you know, in all probability, we will see him see him being, being moved past. And um, we'll see a, a host of central midfielders come in. You know, we've got some really good ones. Declan Rice obviously is is somebody that gets mentioned a lot and I will probably get hate mail for this later on. But uh, I think I think Rice and Jorginho would be a pretty phenomenal midfield, to be honest. Um, I think it would be really, really good. But Declan Rice... Well, the, the, the people that we're trying to address with this episode, um, <laughs> I, I don't know, maybe that would be the unity we're looking for. We can uh, bridge the divide. Yeah, that's the point. I'm just trying to bring those people together. It's a very fractured fan base when it comes to Georgina. I'm just trying to heal it. I'm just saying, look, there are good things, there are bad things, but he's obviously he's obviously a good player. He's, he's There are qualities that need to be appreciated more. He's, he's obviously really, really good. But, you know, with Barcelona getting knocked out, maybe Frankie is available for a knockdown price. Um, a lot of different players. Enzo Fernandez is somebody I've been watching. Enzo Lefebvre is also somebody who's, who's very exciting. So maybe Graham Porter goes for, for one of those. And now we have an entire new recruitment team. So maybe they have completely different thoughts because he doesn't really fit into the Red Bull model of a midfielder. You'd probably see somebody like a Conrad Limer come in. So... Yeah, I think um, I think it's a very interesting juncture to leave it. But I think the final thought that I leave people with is, um, you know, when when he was broke in Verona, when when he had like twenty euros a week, uh, he would go to a McDonald's and he would order a milkshake because he couldn't afford the burger and the fries. So he would buy a one euro milkshake and he would just sit in the square and watch people. And the first thing that he did after winning the Champions League was he went to Verona, but all his teammates were on vacation. So he went to McDonald's and he bought a milkshake and he just sat there and he just enjoyed the city. And I think that speaks volumes about who he is as a person. He's extremely humble. When you look at him at interviews, when you look at him off the pitch, there's obviously an immense amount of respect. You know, the, the way people talk about him, the way players talk about him, the way managers talk about him, there is 100%, you know, a reverence for what he brings. I think if if you're putting yourself into the line of fire a thousand times, you're allowed to make three mistakes, even if like one of those is extremely expensive. But the fact that he's willing to do that, the fact that he's willing to take those risks to to 
attract pressure to to be like like the light, lightning rod like you said that's the perfect word like the lightning rod for for all of the opposition pressure to to be harassed to be you know absolutely uh, pushed into a corner i think he he is an extremely good player he, he takes that upon himself he's taken responsibility he's he likes pressure he tends to convert it into a strength with his penalties i think that's something that i would like people to to sort of like think about you know if you've got a player who's who is a phenomenal human being and who's obviously contributed to one of our greatest achievements at club level so why hate him at all you know he's he's an extremely good person so whatever happens off the pitch it's just it's just on the pitch you know it it happens of over 90 minutes forget it and and love him for who he is and and we go on I think that's a great way to think about it is it's loving the player for what they can do on the pitch. And regardless of rotation, regardless of their inability to be perfect or deliver upon every element that you would hope that they are capable of at a high level, appreciate the goodness, appreciate the control and the consistency, appreciate the ability to have a imprint on the game and to be able to control it, appreciate Jorginho for the Champions League run and the campaign, the huge role he played in that, and the resiliency to adapt in ways to different managers, even if it isn't always the perfect fit between the manager style and Jorginho as a player. But I think that hopefully sets a foundation and framework for additional episodes we will do in this variety. Sam, we haven't decided on a next player so I think we want to put it out to listeners in the social media to tell us who they would want the second player that we deep dive into in this capacity with a little bit of fact or fiction next. Uh, any players you would hope somebody would pick out of the current roster? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a very, very tough one. But we've had some we've had some really good characters in the past. So I, I would actually be pretty open to to going back in time and, and looking at somebody like a John Obi Miguel or, you know. Claude Magalelli, I think somebody who's, I think a lot of the newer Chelsea fans just know of him as, as a figure who's idolized, but don't quite know why a position, an entire position is named after him. So maybe Magalelli, maybe Mikel, maybe Michael Balak, somebody else, but open to any kind of suggestions. I think it's a great thought exercise for me as well. So looking forward to the suggestions and hopefully I can do it justice. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. Let us know what you think. Let us know how you like this format. Give us your suggestions and your feedback. We'd be super appreciative for that. And, you know, of course, you know, give Sam a ton of praise for uh, all the extra work that he's done to make this a wonderful episode for you. But that is going to do it for us. We hope that you're staying safe and stay well. And until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.